before I forget. Can we go ahead and just encourage them with a round of applause? I, uh, they're not asking for it, but they're here. They're here every week practicing Saturdays, usually before church on Sundays, and then they, they bless us that. I was trying to have a bad habit of going over my sermon during worship time, and I couldn't get through it this morning because I was just drawn into worship, which means they're, they're doing a really good job. So just, uh, just encourage them after service. Let them know how much you appreciate the hard work they put in for us. So the next two weeks, we're going to kind of have a mini-series. And that's just the way things are kind of lining up. Um, I may or may not be here on the 23rd, don't know yet. So I've got a two-week window here to, uh, to do something. Because in March, we're going to start something really cool. And I'll tell you a little bit about that later. But um, So I decided something really important to talk about was, was discipleship. And discipleship is a bit of a buzzword. And, and, and a lot of people think a lot of different things about discipleship. So, so today we don't have the media like I mentioned as much. I think I'll have some scripture that'll be up there. Uh, but that's it. We're just going to want to tone it down. It's, it's not going to be a super long couple of sermons. They're going to be pretty straight to the point. Just, just asking you one basic question at the end of each of them. And, and your, your role throughout the week is to ponder that question and to think about it and to apply it to your life because you're going to have opportunities in the next, next couple of weeks, next couple of months to make some shifts, some radical changes in your life. And, and these are questions that you need to be pondering as we make those transitions that will just, just kind of keep you in the flow of where we're going as a church. So I, I uh, read a story yesterday about Clarence Jordan. He is the author of, of something called Cotton Patch. He's a New, New Testament translator, and he, he found the uh, Koinonia Farm in America, Americus, Georgia. Let me uh, move that for a second. The light is shining on my words. And uh, he was getting a red carpet tour of another pastor of the pastor's church. And, and with pride, that minister was pointing out, and this is a true story, was pointing out all the, the rich imported pews and luxurious decorations. As they stepped outside, it was beginning to get dark. And this new pastor um, showed off their kind of pride, their pride and joy. There's this big spotlight, and it was shining on this, this big cross. And the pastor was bragging to him. He said, that, co- that cross cost us $10,000. <laughs> and Clarence Jordan said, you got cheated. There were times when Christians could get them for free. <laughs> tell you another story. There's a, a, a shoe manufacturer. I figure manufacturing kind of works for this community, so we can kind of picture what this looks like. And, and it was a town or city that hadn't produced shoes before. And the management had invested a lot of money, a lot of man hours, into the whole business to produce the finest shoes possible. They spent money on salaries for the employees, the machinery for shoemaking, all the materials and everything. And the plant was in operation with hundreds of workers scurrying to and fro. They were in business for a couple years. Machines were running full blast about two years in. And then one day the president stops by and he asks the production manager, how many shoes have we produced so far? And the manager answered, none. The president exclaims, none, how, how long have you been in operation? Well, about two years. That's right, the manager says. No shoes, but we're really busy. In fact, we've been so busy that we're all nearly tired out. We've been very active at our jobs. We've been doing all we can. We're here all the time. The management would, uh, in this scenario, probably be a little upset. In fact, I would say they'd probably just go ahead and shut down the plant. 
because the plant's purpose was to produce shoes. But if we take that shoe factory in our culture, stick a cross on top of the building, call it a church, I beg to say we wouldn't find too many differences. Because the church has one goal, and that is to produce disciples, to glorify God by producing disciples. And yet you look around and there are churches everywhere that don't produce disciples. They're busy, they're open, spend a lot of money on salaries and buildings and nice, neat things, but they don't produce disciples. And maybe it's a little much to compare the church, the bride of Christ, to a shoe factory, but at the same time, throughout Scripture, we find that it's an expectation that we produce disciples. And if we produce disciples, then we're a church. And if we don't, well, I'm pretty sure Scripture says that we're not. So today, we're going to talk about discipleship. We're going to talk about our culture. And Christianity in America has this, this thing going for it, and that it's its own little subculture. And so you can exist, you know, in, in America as a whole, but it's culturally acceptable to be a Christian, and we've got our own little subculture, we've got all of our nice little phrases and words, discipleship would probably fit in that, got our books, and our, where we're getting into the movie realm, which, you know, I like, don't get me wrong, I like watching Christian films, it, it helps me, I don't have to look for all the bad stuff and filter it out, and we've got all these books, I mean, if you go to my office, there's probably $2,000 worth of books on my shelf back there, and I mean, you just... It's his own subculture. Zondervan makes millions. I mean, one of my favorite Bible teachers, Ray Vanderlyn, literally isn't allowed to teach in certain places because Zondervan owns him. And he's not allowed to talk and say certain... And so Christianity has this subculture that we all exist in. And it's the, the, the higher culture that we exist in is, is the American capitalistic culture that pioneers capitalism to the world. And so we have our little subculture influenced by this, this overarch culture of capitalism, which teaches us that, that we need to have the newest and the best of everything, because that's what makes us relevant, that's what makes us exciting and cool. Krista and I went in to, uh, to trade our phones in yesterday, and the Verizon salesman even said, well, you know, it's not a big deal, I'm sure you'll be back here as soon as the next model's out, because you know, you're going to want the newest and the best, because that's what everybody wants, the newest and the best. Krista walked out to the car like, I don't think he understands that we don't even care. We've never really had smartphones. I mean, they're neat, but give them or take them. But we realize that's the expectation, especially for people our age, that as soon as that new model comes out, well, we're going to want it. We're going to want the newest. We're going to want the best. And so what that creates in our culture, especially in this Christian subculture that we exist in, is that things quickly become old. And, and when you add to that this, this mega church movement that we've had since, since the boomers kind of came into leadership roles, when you add that in, you've got this thing where, where these super mega churches, they're doing super successful because they've got 10, 20, 30,000 people in one building. They, they say, well, hey, this is how we did this. And so then they write a little book about it. And then someone like Zondervan will pick it up and then they'll sell it. And then they'll make millions of dollars. The, the the funny thing about that is, you know, our, our good friends, and I think some of you have met them, Cody and Shreya, they're, they're at a church in Missouri right now, one of these small churches in a town of about, I don't know, what's Eldon, 8,000 people? Eldon, Missouri, smaller town. Church isn't doing too bad, about 200 people. But, you know, they really want to take it further. They want to they do great things. And so what they did... Um, <laughs> 
they went in and, and they set all their staff down and they started going through this curriculum produced by, I don't know which company produced it, but by a church called Real Life about how to do real discipleship and build real relationships. And he called me and he said, Real Life, isn't that the church you guys just got kicked out of? I said, yep. <laughs> that church that was maybe the most shallow church I'd ever been a part of. And suddenly what you have is a church that, because they're growing quickly, because they do really cool worship sets, and, and their minister's a really good speaker, and they're in a neat location, you know, a church that, quite honestly, has very small percentage of their congregation ever involved in anything, has less than 5% of their congregation that's, that's involved in deci- their discipleship curriculum that they're putting out, and, and, and these shallow churches, and, and it's not just this one, there's churches all over the country that are huge, that, that they may be 20,000 people in their church, but only four or 500 are actually growing as disciples. And they're putting out these curriculums, and people are eating them up because, well, look how successful they are. That's what we want to do. They're the biggest, they're the best, they're the newest. And it's really starting to erode what we are as a church. And discipleship has not, has not stayed, stayed away from this. It's been affected as well. And so you've got some of these churches now, these mega churches, you know, about 20, 30 years ago, they started the small groups movement where you start gathering smaller groups, you know, based on the idea that Jesus and his disciples was a small group. That was the best way to learn to to be discipled. You know, they started moving to that format and it started, that was a good thing, I think. It started taking us back towards some of the first century stuff that Jesus was doing instead of away from this cultural capitalistic culture that we have in our churches. And so they started doing that movement And now, I was just reading the other day, some of the very ministers that started that movement, I guess they want more attention because they're saying, ah, that movement's not effective. We don't like it anymore. Let's go back to something else. And they'll switch it. Ah, we need to try something else now, so they'll switch it. And so discipleship has become this buzzword in Christianity because now it's outdated. Because discipleship was a thing for the 80s and 90s. You know, now don't talk about discipleship. That's too old now. But you know what? You're right. That model is outdated. You know, I think Rick Warren recently talked about how small groups is now outdated. You're darn right it's outdated. It's outdated by 2,000 years. Because that's the model they used in the first century. That's what they did. And now we've got these things where, well, you know, it's just not new enough for us. It's not exciting enough for us. So discipleship will go on the back shelf. Because it's one of these fads, and now we'll concentrate on these other experiences over here. But discipleship can't be put on a back shelf. It's everything. It's everything that we're called to do. Disciples is everything we're called to be. In America, if you've paid attention, the term disciple has become synonymous with Christian. In fact, a lot of churches I've been to have, you know, if you're a Christian, I'll just call you a disciple. If you come to my church, well, you're a disciple. I'm a Christian, so I'm a disciple. Now, part of that's right in terms of all Christians are called to be disciples. But I would heavily argue that not everybody that sits in a church is a disciple nor a Christian. And that's a hard message. I would also argue I'm a missionary. I'm a missionary at heart. That's, that's what I'm called to do. You know, but he, so, so you ask me, what am I doing here? Well, you know, I also will make the argument that one of the, the greatest mission fields in our country is in our churches. That's bold. I know that's bold. A lot of people disagree with me, but 
from where I'm standing, not, not necessarily from here, but standing in front of churches with two or 4,000 people that I've been a part of, there's a big mission field that sits in pews on Sundays that need, that need the gospel message. So today we're going to try to look at what a disciple in Jesus' time really was. First off, the, the word for disciple in Greek is methetes. In Greek, it's talmudim. And those two words basically mean one thing. They basically mean learner. That's pretty simple. And we have to realize that when we look at the first century, Jesus and his disciples, they were all Jewish. And so if we try to look at this from our perspective, we're going to really distort what a disciple is. We have to look at it from a Jewish perspective and what the Jews did. And Jesus, all throughout Scripture, we're talking 12, 15 times, including Matthew 26, 25, if you want to look it up sometime, he is called rabbi. Over and over again, they call Jesus rabbi, which leaves us to assume that many of Jesus' teaching methods and styles would have been rabbinic. He taught as a Jewish teacher to Jewish pupils. And so, today we're going to travel to a town where he chose anywhere from four to six of his disciples. James and John might have been from this town. We know that Peter, Andrew, and Philip came from it. It's a small fishing town called Bethsaida. And Bethsaida was was fairly tiny. It was small. I mean, much smaller than this. Much smaller than Frankfurt. I mean, you're talking... I don't don't even know if they've gotten to the thousands. You know, we don't know the number exactly, but it was tiny. What we do know about Bethsaida is they were just about three miles away from a polis. Napolis was a, was a Greek city-state that was, was advancing technologically. And this, this city was becoming large, and it was new, and it was Greek, and it had all of the bells and the whistles. I mean, you're talking indoor plumbing and the, the whole nine yards. I mean, it's got all the learned individuals. These people have studied under the best, and this place is booming. Three miles down the road. And Jesus chooses his disciples from Bethsaida. Why? Well, there's a couple of things. First, Bethsaida was, was a Jewish community. And they were known for their fervor, like many Jewish communities, in the scriptures. And so we know right off the bat that Joseph, Jesus chose his disciples based on the fact that they were brought up knowing and understanding the scriptures. However, if you choose people from, from a polis, from one of these cities, what you're going to get is Greek culture. Jewish culture teaches that God is first. We talked about it last week with the Shema. You know, the Lord God is one. He is first. He is prime. They recite it every day. In Greek culture, your status is based on your achievement. Political status. How much you learn. How much money you make. Greek culture teaches that you learn to be the best. That you learn that it's all about you. We live in a Greek culture. That's what America is. We're Greek culture. And so what Jesus did was he said... You know, this may be the most advanced, learned city, but I want these guys. And that's big. And the other thing is, it's not just because of the Shema that these people knew that God was first. I mean, even the way their entire city and their little town was set up showed them that God was the priority. Because the synagogue would be right in the middle of town. And then every other housing structure and everything else would be built around it. So that everybody always knew that this is the center of our community. Everything, all the parties, all the weddings, all the funerals, all the teachings, all the meals, everything we do happens here. It is the center of our community. God is our middle. And and what Jewish children would do from a very young age, they would start education, much like we do. 
except their entire curriculum was, was the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And from this, they would learn to read and write. And this was called Bet Sefer. And what they do in Bet Sefer is, is these kids, they would actually memorize. I mean, we're talking up to the age of 10. They would memorize the entire, uh, the entire Torah, the entire Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Three of those books that none of us ever read, they memorized them. Okay? They memorized all of it before the age of 10. And this was the beginning of the discipleship process. However, uh, and the rabbi, what he would do, he'd sit in in the synagogue, and he would teach from the synagogue, and he would be the teacher of the students. But but after they were 10, not all of them were discipleship material, even after memorizing all of those books. And so they would uh, take the best of the best. They would take the top two or three students from Bet Sefer, and they'd go to Bet Midrash. And Bet Midrash, they would, uh, they would move on. All the other kids at, at 10 years old, they would start going and being an apprentice in the family business. They'd go to the fields, they'd go to the carpenter shop. Uh, some of the girls would start looking at getting married and starting having families. And so they would, they would move on. But those top two or three students, um, the top males, they would move on in that culture. And so they'd go to Bet Midrash, and they would go forth, and then they would move on to the prophets and the writings and the rest of the Old Testament. And by the time they're 13, these young boys would be completely learned in what the rabbi said all of the teachings were of the entire Old Testament. And 13 to 15 years old, they would have the entire Old Testament memorized, word for word. But yet it wasn't enough. Still yet, these individuals could not become disciples. And so the best of the best of the Bet Midrash, they would go forth and they would have the ability to go and and seek out a rabbi that they wanted to follow, And they would ask that rabbi if they could be their Talmudim, their disciple. Many of them were told no. But a couple of them, the best of the best, were told yes. And so for the next 15 to 18 years of their life, until they were 30 years old, they would follow a rabbi literally in his footsteps so much that it's said that a disciple, a Talmudim, was in the dust of their rabbi, covered in the dust of their rabbi. Because they would be walking so closely behind them in the desert that they would be covered in their dust. And for the next 15 to 18 years of life, they lived, they ate, they breathed, they did everything with their rabbi. They didn't just want to be like their rabbi, they wanted to be their rabbi. And when they got to the age of 30, they would move up to rabbi status and they would start to take their own Talmudim. So you here you have Jesus at the age of 30 as a rabbi taking his own Talmudim. What do we notice about this, though? What do we notice when Jesus calls his disciples out from fishing with their fathers? There's two things. He goes, he goes to the shore and he says, hey, come follow me. He's talking to people out that are casting nets with their fathers. There's two things there. One, these people are fishing. That must mean they're the rejects. Because if they're fishing, they didn't make it. They didn't even make it to Madrash. So you've got these people that aren't even the top of the top of the top of the top of the top. They're not even the top of the top. And they're not old. They're not, they're not these people that are 30, 40 years old. We're talking young men. We're talking boys that Jesus is calling. We don't know the exact age of all the disciples, but we can assume that some of them were teens. Some of them were a little older, but some were teens. Some were young. 
And so you've got these young men that Jesus is calling, and, and you wonder why in the world. In our culture, it doesn't make sense. He says, come follow me, and they just drop their fishing nets and leave their family. I don't understand. Well, it doesn't make sense in our culture, but it makes perfect sense in Jewish culture. I mean, rabbis were, were, were it. I mean, they were the top. Everybody wanted to be a rabbi. Everybody wanted that prestige. Everybody wanted that recognition. So you've got a bunch of rejects that were denied by rabbis, that didn't make it through school, that were said they weren't good enough, and you've got a rabbi that come and says, be my Talmudim, you better believe they're going to drop their nets and follow him. But that brings us to the second point. Not only were, was Jesus choosing the people that weren't the best of the best of the best, Jesus was choosing these people. Don't miss it. Jewish culture, you asked the rabbi if you could follow them. Jesus went to the disciples and he called them. And he said, no, you follow me. That tells us something. That tells us that Jesus calls us. He seeks us. And so we can look at ourselves and we can say, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I don't know if I have the skills. But you know what? Jesus is calling us. He's calling you, he's calling me. And he's continually calling us. And we're left with the choice to either drop our nets and run to him or to say no. Because if you don't answer, you're saying no. Not answering is, in fact, an answer. The reason Jesus called these disciples from Bethsaida is because he knew that he would be their priority. Had he gone to the Greek city, you couldn't have expected this type of commitment. Because Jesus knew that his disciples were going to face testing. He knew that they were going to face persecution. He knew they were going to die for him. Had he called someone from a Greek city-state, they would not have put up with that. But because of their rich Jewish heritage and their commitment to the rabbi, these disciples knew that Jesus was number one. And what they wanted and their safety and their comfort didn't really matter. What mattered was that Jesus was their rabbi. So what we're going to do is we're going to look real quick at one scripture. We're going to turn or we're going to have it up there for Matthew 8, 18 through 27. And let's listen to what happens when Jesus talks about discipleship. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go to bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus is saying here that he has to be number one. The scribe that comes up and asks to follow him, the scribe would have been the best of the best of the best. To be a scribe in that culture, you had to be the best of the best of the best. And so here you have, you know, you've got a Harvard graduate here, class valedictorian coming up and say, I want to follow you. And Jesus basically says, I sleep on a rock. You know, this is what I do. 
Are you, are you prepared to give up your comforts? This young man, being so educated, probably would have been, maybe had a little money in his family. He's not willing to give it up. The comforts of the world, to him, were more than following Christ. But Christ said, no, it has to be given up. Then you've got this other young man, and people look at it in our culture and say, what's so wrong about giving your dad a funeral? Well, first, there is some context. I mean, funerals were not simply just a one-day affair, and most likely his dad probably wasn't even dead yet. But the point of the scripture is that this gentleman was saying, wait to Jesus. Catch that. No matter what the cultural difference is, this gentleman was saying, wait, whether his father was already dead or not, whether it was going to be a one-day thing or a three-year thing, this gentleman said, wait, I want to follow you, but after this. Notice Jesus' response. Uh Uh-uh. Because Jesus has to be your sole priority in everything. Even something that's as important as burying a family member, Jesus still has to be more important than that. Because if he's not your number one priority, you can't be a disciple. So what we're really going to ask today is, and the band, you can go ahead and come up and get ready. I'm about to finish. So I want to ask, you know, are you a disciple? And this is what you need to ponder throughout the week. Are you a disciple? And next week we're going to go even more into what it looks like today in our culture to become disciples and to be a disciple. I know I look at it and I get convicted. I mean, you have these 10-year-old kids that can memorize the entire Old Testament and literally walk in the dust of their rabbi, and I can't even turn off the TV some nights. It's convicting to me. It's a question I have to ask myself. But are you a disciple? And and maybe the more pertinent question here is, do you even want to be a disciple? Because what Jesus deals with in these scenarios is these people, whether they actually want it or not, they say they want it. They say they want to be a part of that family. They say they want him to be their rabbi, but then the comforts of the world and, and the tasks of society are holding them back. As church, we can't, be, we can't be like that shoe factory. I told you a couple weeks ago that, that illustration about the church in New York that closed and hung the sign on the door that said, you know, out of business, forgot what our business was. Business is making disciples. And our, our business here isn't to play nice music. It's not to have pretty sermons. It's not to have the best facilities. It's not to sell the best cup of coffee. Our end game here is to make disciples. That's it. And, and people in our culture make that pretty. These churches, they make it pretty. They make it entertaining. They make it to be this thing that you can, the show that you can go to free of charge once a week. But being a disciple's dirty. Literally dirty. I mean, disciples walked covered in dust, giving of their lives, opening themselves to hurts, to pains. You can't be a disciple and be safe. They don't go together. And as a church family, if we're not growing spiritually together and we don't have new people coming in to be a part of our church family, then we're not disciples. Because that has to happen. Disciples naturally make disciples. It's listed out in Scripture. And it's our job. If we're not making new disciples, if we're not becoming disciples ourselves, then we're not a church. Sounds harsh, but it's true. We can't get caught up in the cultural wave of what it means to be a Christian while throwing aside what Jesus said what it means to be a Christian. 
Jesus didn't die on the cross for some culturally acceptable Christian. Jesus died on the cross for a disciple. He deserves more than what we give him. We're going to be moving as a church forward continually as we so have lately. We're going to start something in March. We're going to start some things that we're just going to call them house churches. We don't want to make some fancy name. Where we're going to have the opportunity to, to worship God in every way that he deserves worship. We do, we do okay here. We, we, we worship God with song, with praise, with teaching, with giving. Those are all things that worship God. But there's, there's more. There's more that we miss the depth of if we don't go deeper as disciples. You know, the prayer, the intercessory prayer, the praying together, the accountability, the person-to-person encouragement. These things, they're all worship God. And we, we can't neglect those simply because our, our current method of doing church and our culture doesn't allow it. That's not an excuse. So we're going to keep doing this, but we're going to be giving you opportunities to engage in, in house churches where you can do that more fully with a smaller group of people, be intimate with other disciples, to grow together as a group of 12 like Jesus did. So what I, what I just want you to think about, in March I'll start a series called Radical, where we're going to look at what it actually means to be a Christian. No more of this culturally acceptable Christian crap. It's not effective. Look at our country. I don't have to, I don't have to tell you. We've lost our influence. And so I just want you to consider this week and next week and the next couple of weeks, what do you think it means for you? Maybe it's different for all of us. One thing's the same. Jesus expects us to give up everything. That's across the board. It doesn't mean he's not going to give some of it back. It doesn't mean he's not going to use what we have. He expects us to give everything. That's across the board. But what it looks for you to be a disciple, me to be a disciple, it may be different. But he still expects everything. So ask yourself this week, am I a disciple? Seriously, search the scriptures. See what it says about being a disciple. Ask yourself the hard question. And then ask yourself the harder question, do I even want to be a disciple? I struggle with that one sometimes. Sometimes I say I don't know. With everything in me, I want to be a disciple. Well, then why in the world do I not be a disciple? They're hard questions, but they're questions that need to be asked. So that's the questions I have for you. We're going to have our our song here of, of invitation that we do every week. And that's an opportunity not just for you to come and make a decision. Most of us in here have made some of those those public decisions. Maybe it's just an opportunity for you to sit there, to be blessed by our worship team leading you into the presence of God, and to say, God, convict me. That's one of those dangerous prayers. Convict me of where I'm falling short. Convict me of my priorities. Am I a disciple, God? What do you need me to do to be a disciple? What do you need of me? And then I dare you to answer him. Don't just ask the question without answering. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your son. I thank you that he was was bloodied on that cross. He was beaten. He was bruised. I thank you that he had a spear stuffed through his side. He had nails pierced through his hands and his feet. He was whipped to bare bones. I thank you for that convict me that he deserves more. That he deserves more than what I give him. That he deserves more than what we give him. 
that he didn't do that so we could sit in church two hours a week and claim to be Christians while living our lives like we're devoted to everything else. Convict us, God, that he died for disciples, that he died for world changers, and that if our mission is not to be world-changing disciples of him, then we have no mission. Thank you for what you're doing here and in this community. Give us the courage, give us the accountability, and give us, God, just the desire and the passion that we need to follow you like you deserve to be followed. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Temptation comes my way, and when I cannot stand or fall on you, Jesus, you're my hope and stay. And when I cannot stand or fall on you, Jesus, you're my.